this thing on? If you like rock music, punk, metal, or blues, then you've come to the right place because we like it too. And welcome back to Soundcheck, the first best and only music podcast. I am your host, Ben Ackley, and I'm here with... Michael Livingston. And... And uh, Brody Britton. And today we are talking about outsider music, uh, and we don't housekeep anymore, so let's get into it. Yes. Yes. Um, I think that the best way to talk about outsider music, Michael came up with this, is to start it with a song. Because the way that outsider music works is that you know it when you hear it. Yes. So we are going to play... A song from probably the king of outsider music, and one of and one of the probably the best known uh, outsider music albums. Definitely, uh, this is from "Hi, How Are You" by Daniel Johnston, "Walking the Cow." I mean, that was just a little bit of Walking the Cow, and I think we'll probably talk ad nauseum about Daniel Johnston yes, and a bunch of people. Um, but before we start, I want to note that I'm going to be quoting at length from Erwin Chussed's Songs in the Key of Z, which was is probably the outsider music bible, I would say. Um, he was an expert that did a radio show for like 20 years about outsider music, Um and just a truly great read if you can find it. But we're going to be pulling lots of info from that. So even if I'm not citing stuff when I say it, um, if I directly quote, I'll mention it. But may I, may I ask a question real quick? Yeah. Uh, did he coin the genre term? I don't know, actually. I think Erwin uh, pr- preferred the term incorrect music mm. um, because I think it, it it gets rid of that otherness a little bit. Yeah. In a way. I can see that. But... Um, Enough of my yakking. There's also another great resource y- uh, y'all should look up by Alpha Media. It's a YouTube video, just 12 minutes long. Gives a great general history and um, like a, a dozen really good songs to jump off of, a lot of which we're going to be showing today. Yeah, that's a really good overview. And I think we're going to kind of get into that and go a little bit deeper on a few of these artists and uh, just sort of give a bit of a, a, an overview of the big stuff. And then I'm just going to talk about some stuff I really like. Because I am, I've been into this for a few years now. After coming off of a two-parter country, this is going to kind of be a, a nice little uh, quick one. You know, ten songs to get you into style right. sort of thing. This is sort of your detox. Uh, yeah. To, I think I think Ben's will also be kind of taking the reins. He's kind of the outsider music aficionado here. So, Yeah, and, and that being said, I can talk a little bit about this term that we've used 10 times already that right. we haven't even really defined yet, outsider music. Um, so I think to talk about what it is, 
first we should talk about how it happens. Mm -hmm. So this is from Songs in the Key of Z. <clears throat> Outsider music sometimes develops naturally. In other cases, it could be the product of damaged DNA, psychotic seizures, or alien abduction. Perhaps medical malpractice, incarceration, or simply drug fry triggers its evolution. Maybe shrapnel in the head, possession by the devil, or submission to Jesus. Chalk it up to communal upbringing or bad beer. There's no universal formula. That's one characteristic that makes outsider music so refreshing. It's unpredictability. It's undeniable that on first listening, there's often a measure of comedic value to some of these artists. But inevitably, there's a je ne sais quoi that transcends laughter. Each of these artists, regardless of accessibility, has a singular identity and a recognizable style. So essentially, outsider music uh, has that I'll know it when I hear it quality. Yeah. But if we want, should we try to define it? Yeah, sure. Do I, would, I would break it down to three uh, main components. Um, like we're saying, the know it when you hear it, the originality, and then I would add sort of, um, I would add lo-fi to that as well. Um, but even then, um, some of these artists we're going to talk about are masters of production. I, yeah, I think I think lo-fi is something to look out for, definitely. But as recording technology improves and mm -hmm. becomes more widely available, it's becoming less and less. I would say a lot of early outsider music, particularly from uh, like especially like late seventies to the early nineties, I would say, uh, it, it does have a lot of crossover. Oh. With low fi Definitely. And on that note, like low production value is something you yeah. should look for too. So if you're hearing, uh, especially from times before now, if you're hearing like programmed drums or programmed keyboard parts, stuff like that, like stuff that you wouldn't think that a real musician would use to make a song. I think another thing uh, that comes with it, uh, I know is like a, a kind of a through line with it, is this kind of like childlike naivete to mm -hmm. the music, whether they don't know that they're making something a little left field, or it's even in the case of such as like uh, Daniel Johnston, uh, childlike lyrics and innocence to right. it. it. It seems to be a very common through line with it. Yes. Yeah, I think I think that's that is really for me what sets outsider music apart from just experimental music or avant garde mm -hmm. music is the person has to think that what they're doing is commercial or it have some sort of commercial appeal or is more than it is like what how it sounds in their head is different than how it sounds to you and I and I think that's as we've discussed um, some musicians we know of whether or not they're outsider is the big I think the big one that as you just mentioned is are they intentionally trying to sound uh, out there are they intentionally trying to sound experimental uh, because as you said it's to them it sounds like mainstream music in their head right if you think you're outsider you're not outsider exactly. i think is the the moral of the story yeah and we'll also go into um kind of what uh, our author here keeps saying is uh it can come from so many different places mm. in some cases they involve the wildest stories and tales ever so i think a lot of that is going to be the most entertaining part of this episode is going into the backstory of these artists yeah there are lots of really good anecdotes here and i yeah i think i think the important thing to think of moving forward is it's okay to laugh at some of this stuff um but there's something else that you're going to hear in it that you'll appreciate long after the comedic value wears off i think that i think that what makes daniel johnston the king of of 
outsider is like i think even if you have no idea of outsider at all like you can tell by the lyrics and even just the music quality again whether intentional or not there's just some just sadness and melancholy about like his music at least is like no laughing matter right and we'll talk a little more about Daniel Johnston later, I think. Yes. I will add one more cherry on top to the definition of outsider music. Yeah. It's recognition from a lot of mainstream artists. For mm-hmm. example, Daniel Johnston was a top-tier artist for Kurt Cobain, mm-hmm. um, been... as well as, um, uh, help me out here, uh, Zappa. Yeah. Zappa. He was a big fan of Daniel Johnston. Uh, the B-52s were a big fan of my recommendation later on. So a lot of these bigger mainstream artists find inspiration and originality from these hyper-original bands and artists. I think we can talk about another favorite band of Frank Zappa and Kurt Cobain, that being The Shags. This is their song, My Pal Foot Foot. a bit of my pal foot foot from the shags philosophy of the world their first album and widely considered one of the worst albums of all time by those not in the know mm-hmm. well let's break it down to its main components being the uh really intriguing backstory of how this all came together right so the shags were the wigan sisters um and their dad for one reason or another really wanted them to be rock stars well the psychic Oh, well, (laughs) there is a, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story or a true story, but either a psychic that may have been his mother-in-law or may have been unrelated said, your daughters will be rock stars. Well, obviously the thing for Arthur Wiggin to do is enroll all of his daughters in music lessons uh, and have them start a band called The Shags, named after... Apparently, Shaggy Dogs and the popular Shag haircut at the time, popularized by the Beatles. Um, they got to practicing. They practiced for a while. They started booking gigs. They would actually play regularly at their town hall uh, in uh, Fenton, I believe, was where they lived. So they had a weekly, I think every Saturday night, they would have a dance, and the Shags would play there. Uh, and the music sounded a lot like that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and uh, we have to acknowledge the brevity and the speed that this this father wanted his daughters to become famous. Uh, 
I mean, you can tell that they weren't in music lessons, if music lessons at all, for very long before they started playing gigs and recording an album in Boston. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, they would play gigs in New Hampshire's, then I think less than a year later they were in the studio. Just total sort of an organic way of putting together an album. Right, know? he got them going really quick, and they wrote uh, an album full of songs and then got into the studio. Apparently they closed the control room doors while they were recording because all the engineers were rolling on the floor laughing, literally. Um, yeah, I know when they played gigs, kids from all around would come to make fun of them. Yeah, I think their first gig they had uh, soda cans thrown at them, but apparently their gigs always didn't have a uh, negative component so a veteran major label exec by the name of Palmer, he has a quote in Songs from the Key of Z, uh, and I'm going to read it here verbatim. <clears throat> they sounded exactly like the record. It was unbelievable. The locals came out and danced in a clumsy, arrhythmic, Night of the Living Dead sort of way. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking, how can you dance to this music? But they did. So... I mean, at least in their hometown, the Shags became a bit of a weekly sensation. Uh, and their music sounded like that live, and it sounds like that on the record. And uh, the Shags managed to make one of the most unique-sounding recordings in music history, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I think it's also to be said those record execs, execs, I think a thousand of philosophy of the world was meant to be printed, only about a hundred of the original copies survived. Yeah, there is a story about that, that um, I think there were a thousand pressed, and then there was some shady guy who maybe ran away with 900 copies. I don't know why he would, because um, there's not much of a commercial appeal, especially in 1969. Um, but it was either that, or he was just like giving them away out of the studio. But eventually, these albums end up in people's hands. In 1980, it's reissued on NRBQ's Rounder Records. Um, and it, it becomes a pretty big deal after that. I think that's when, that's around the time that Zappi hears about it. Eventually it gets to Kurt Cobain, uh, and the rest yes. is history. Uh, Zappa had a very famous quote about the Shags. Yes. <laughs> he, he had a very stupid quote about the Shags. Better than the Beatles? Yeah, he said the Shags are, the Shags are better than the Beatles. But yes, very famously one of zappa's favorite bands and uh, i believe it is on kurt cobain's top 50 albums of all time yeah so yeah the main component here that we need to look at is this unadulterated originality you've never heard anything sounding like the shags and you never will that's just a fact yeah and there, you can I, i've seen lots of it you can overanalyze the music of the shags to death and say oh the the Wigan sisters are playing in polyrhythms and the drums are here and this is here. The fact of the matter is there are three people playing instruments and one person singing and they're all in completely different time signatures. It's like a, a, a musical impossibility where if you put everyone in the studio and you have them start playing, if you have any sort of musical mindset, you will sync up in some way. Yeah. So this total A rhythm that they've achieved on basically every song on this album is totally unbelievable, and it's still replicated today when Dot plays live, um, which she does with some regularity, and the songs sound like they do on the record. And I think either it was the Alpha Media video or a different video I watched on either the Shags or Outsider Music, but in some, in some fashion, the psychic was right. 
uh, they became rock stars. They did eventually become rock stars. And I, uh, there's a lot to laugh at with Philosophy of the World. Like, it's a funny album, definitely, up, upon first blush. But I own it on vinyl. It's behind me right now in the video. Um, I've listened to it all the way through on multiple occasions. It's it's a real... If you So, being someone who listens to music all the time like me, I get into these sort of funks where it's like I, I just can't appreciate stuff as much as I would, you know, if I've listened to a hundred songs over the last however long you know like if i've just been listening to a shitload of music Mm -hmm. then i kind of stop appreciating it so an album like philosophy of the world is something that really breaks me out of that cycle real palate cleanser right i think this is something that the alpha media pointed out was uh like when we do our cd dollar bin episodes or something like that chances are everything we pull from that dollar bin is going to sound like something we've heard before Mm -hmm. that's not the case with this kind of music no definitely not and that, that's the really important thing is it, it follows the same sort of uh, diagram for me that movies do where there's this giant swath of stuff in the middle of music that's just like average. But the stuff way over here in terms of talent or quality or whatever is really fun to listen to and the stuff way over here is really fun to listen to. I think, I think what's really interesting about the Shags is you can tell they know very little about their instruments. The guitars are out of tune. They're out of sync. I would say the only thing that is really decent is the vocals are like fine. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not like I don't think they're like bad. <laughs> but I and I think this goes with a lot of outsider music is that even intentionally I don't think this could have been replicated. No, and that's that is really the significant thing. That's why so many music people especially get off on the music of the Shags is that it's Something, if if us three came in here today and said, okay, let's for our cover at the end of the episode do a Shags cover, that would be the hardest shit we would ever have to play. Yeah, yeah. Harder, we, harder than trying to replicate Creedence Clearwater last week. Right. I mean, if, if we wanted to accurately depict one of their songs and not try to turn it into a more conventional song or whatever, it would take us days and days and days of practice to even get close. Well, I mean, I think also with that, it's they're probably... I, I don't know this for a fact, so but they're probably a they're out of tune, so we would have to be like exactly as out of tune as they are, and then also I'm going to assume that they're probably not playing real chords or re, or or playing notes with any sort of intention. I seriously have no clue. So like, I think that's the thing. I don't think, but the, here's the thing though, and I think they mentioned this in the Alpha Media video. When Dot plays, they've somehow transcribed it. They play it live exactly like it is on the record. So there's got to be some talent behind that. So go the Shags. Yes, yes. And Michael? No, I I don't really have much more to add other than that, is that we're going to go through and explain these artists a little more beat by beat, but with the Shags, there's so much originality and so much to unpack that there's only so much we can say. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not like we can say, oh, this kind of sounds like this mixed with this. The shags sound like the shags. It's, yes. it's it. And also, I think, you know, they've been talked about to the death. To, yeah. to death. We can't really add any more to the So it's like the shags and Daniel Johnson. And if there was a Mount Rushmore of outsider music, I think yes. it's pretty safe to say they'd both be up there. Ben, I think you're really excited to talk about the next one we have in our playlist. I here. really am. So... 
the Shags were my first album, my first full album of outsider music that that I was really introduced to. But the first band that I ever heard that I qualify as outsider music, I think most would, um, is a Virginia family band known as Three Beats Slide. We're going to play for you, I guess what I would call their biggest hit. Um, This is The Beach Boogie. Here comes. Are you ready? Let's go. Doesn't matter where you are, you can even do it in your car. East Coast, West Coast, Mid States, too. They know how to really shake it, too. So you say you want some more? Well, do it in the grocery store. How about at the gas station? Now watch it spread across the nation. Do the beach boogie, yeah, yeah. Do the beach boogie, yeah, yeah. Do the beach boogie, yeah, yeah. Gotta keep moving, oh yeah. Do the beach boogie, yeah, yeah. Do the beach boogie, yeah, yeah. Do the beach boogie, yeah, yeah. Gotta keep moving. Doesn't matter where you are. Would you like to showcase what you oh, have yeah. here? Oh, yeah. So, so for audio listeners and for the video listeners, I have a few pieces of three-beat slide ephemera around here. Right here behind my Daniel Johnston-esque chord organ, um, I have a signed photo from three-beat slide. Uh, right here, I have a signed CD copy of their Visualize EP. This is... <laughs> <laughs> so they were signed and numbered. This is number 52, and this EP came out in 2016. Keep it together, man. <laughs> and uh, I didn't bring it, but at home I have a copy of their three-beat slide board game, which cost me $40. And was it worth it? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, and I'm really just piecing this together now, I think I can unabashedly say that three-beat slide is one of my favorite bands of all time (laughs) please explain to the audience so uh, i first heard tell of three beat slides sometime in probably 2016 or 2017 i don't know if it was this is the song that's music video was making the rounds i know h3h3 did a uh, video on this music video right but i know i had fan i had friends who were into this at the same time too so somehow it the Beach Boogie was making the rounds on the internet, and I heard about it, and I watched that video, and I laughed my ass off, and I, you know, most people, especially in the internet age with something like this, would move on. You know, you see it, it's funny, there's an awkward family band that's dancing around and making this, um, and and then you move on. But I, I was like, there has to be something more here. My, my, my brain really started to go, because I... I I had never heard anything so far outside the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, okay, so do these people know what they're doing? Do they know it's funny? Do they know it's bad? What do they know? So I, I dive deeper into them. I listen to all their stuff on YouTube, which at this point was probably only five or six songs. Um, and I really just start figuring out as much as I can about this band, about their like style and their influences and just try it it becomes sort of a puzzle that I tried to unlock because there's 
every time I find something new, like a radio interview where all the DJs are making fun of the dad, but he's just sort of earnestly talking about his music, I'll find them performing on Tosh.0. And it's like, I keep finding these things, and it's like there's evidence for they know what they're doing, but then there's evidence for they're being totally earnest. Um, and I just fall down the rabbit hole with them. And every, they, they release maybe a song per year, maybe two, sometimes zero. But I have been eagerly awaiting every song that comes out. They seem to still be doing stuff. Uh, I think I can talk about the, the band members a little bit, too. Sure. So Three Beat Slide is also known as the Sturm family. Um, the band does not include the mother of the Sturm family, but it does include Edward Jr., Edward Sr., and Diana. So Diana and Edward Jr. are brother and sister, and then Edward Sr. is, of course, the dad and, I would say, band leader. He takes a lot of the lead vocals. He seems to do a lot of the songwriting. Um, and uh, on their website, he says, uh, What's there not to like about being in a family band while having fun making music? That pretty much sums up my motivation for doing what I do. Being able to create something positive and spending time together is pretty special. So from what I have surmised, Three Beat Slide is uh, trying to make fun, pop-influenced music, sometimes leaning into rock a little bit more. Um, and they really like making music videos, too. They've never released an album. They only release singles. Um, they're they're sort of like they're 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 doing that internet age thing where it's like uh, here's a song here's a song like you don't have to try to cobble together an album or something like that. So can you contextualize for us why do you put this in the outsider music label? Okay, I think it's definitely so Beach Boogie that you just heard. There's not really a, a genre. <laughs> like I don't really know if I could slot that song into comfortably oh this is a rap song or this is a pop song because it's too slow to be a rap song but there's not really like it's sort of like a chant more than anything and there's just sort of sounds happening in different drum parts but there's not really chords conceivably or many notes um they have another song that i would call i guess a little bit more of a rap song um that is uh, Skip Skip Slide. That one has a pretty killer s fake saxophone part. Um, but it's those two songs specifically that are really far out. Like, I've never heard anything else like those. And those really piqued my curiosity. Beyond that, there are elements of outsider music and a lot of the other stuff that they've done, but it's those two songs, those two earlier songs from them that, that really do it. I have a quick question uh, about them. Mm -hmm. You seem to know a lot about them. Have they kind of... Um taken like a uh a tommy wiseau arc and they, do they kind of like accept or lean into that they're kind of a joke i i i have seen the only evidence i've seen of that is their appearance on tosh.0 mm -hmm. um, other than that it seems like it seems like they know that like oh we're just like like they don't think that they're like some sort of prog band or something but they know so they're like oh we're just pop music you know mm -hmm. like we're not super serious but i think that they take what they do very seriously the only influence i can see with beach boogie which in like it's definitely in the pop realm it's almost and i think this is very obvious it's almost trying to be like a uh 
a, you know, the, I can't think of the actual song name, so I'm just going to do my best to sing them. Um, like the, you know, the song that goes like, to the right, to the right, like oh, that yeah. song. Cupid Shuffle. Cupid yeah, Shuffle, yeah. or the, the big one with the everybody clap your hands line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what that's called. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we know the one. But like, you know, those, those dancing songs that become hits for two seconds. Mambo number five. That is Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> do not do not insult Mr. Lou Bega. I'm not slandering Mama number five. <laughs> I'm saying I think Three Beat Slide has that same sense of fun that yeah. like that late nineties pop music does. Yeah, I'm trying to think. There was one The Venga Boys. Yeah, so like that's like the only influence I can see, but even that kind of makes it outsider because it's such a specific influence. Right. It's a very specific influence and then they're doing their best to create something like that and it just sort of falls on its face yes but you know i'm glad i'm glad that we have a band here that's very near and dear to you i honestly cannot believe that we're like analyzing three beat slide on this show right (laughs) (laughs) but i have i have really spent hours and hours of my time with friends family uh priests pastors (laughs) um police officers when i showed up at the sturm's house talking about this band and what they mean to me um and it's obviously there's something funny about some of their music at least and it's fun to laugh at others misfortune at at sometimes i cannot uh, i would i would say unfortunately uh for outsider music this one kind of unfortunately kind of stays in its comedic realm would you say i would say yeah there's there's not like that there's not that depth of beauty that daniel johnston has right but there is this i guess there's something to it for me i don't i can't like totally explain i'm looking it. i'm looking at this picture could you hold up the picture for the camera oh yeah so here like like look at look at look at the family. They they look like they're having fun. There's something there's something nice about that. The, yeah, there I I there's a wholesome quality to it. That, yes, wholesome. That's that's it. Yeah, that I think is is one of the main attractions to me because there, uh, even though it's bad, there's like this, let's make a, a hit song sort of attitude yeah. where it's like I, I really appreciate that, and you can totally tell too in the music videos like. They have a song called America is the Place to Be um, that they filmed when they were on vacation in Washington, D.C. Or, like, they have a song that they filmed when they were on vacation somewhere in the Caribbean. It's like they're they're clearly good folks who are doing well for themselves, mm-hmm. and they just are having fun. Um, Can we move on to another uh, outsider music king, though, that kind of carries this comedic role with him? I was I was gonna say you mentioned the the Mount Rushmore with the Shags and uh, Daniel Johnson. I I'd say he'd be on there as well. Yes, this guy definitely would be. We're not gonna play his big one, um, but here's a a bit of a message for you from Wesley Willis. This is from his Greatest Hits Volume Two, compiled by Jello Piafra. find another job that doesn't pay me enough money at all. I want a better one. I'm going to tell you this. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Take this job and shove it. I'm not working for you anymore. Stick it up your ass. 
suck my damn dick, asshole! Fuck your crummy ass jerk! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! So that was a bit of a taste of Fuck You by Wesley Willis, um, the king of pre-programmed keyboard beats, I would say. Yes, yes, that, that, that is his big thing, is that he usually just uses the, the presets on his keyboard. Yeah, and now that you've heard that, you've kind of, you, you have a pretty good idea of what the vast majority of Wesley Willis songs sound like. And like, I, I think it's very likely, we, you, didn't, he, you mentioned his biggest hit, it's very likely you've probably heard his biggest hit, which is um, Rock and Roll McDonald's. Of course, named after and about the famous Rock and Roll McDonald's in Chicago, which is no more. Rest in peace to the Rock and Roll McDonald's. Thank you for your service. (laughs) Um, So Wesley Willis was a literal giant of a man, a huge, super tall, giant guy uh, who I think had schizophrenia. Yes. Yes. Um, And made music such as that. He, Wesley claimed to have written 35,000 songs. And after listening to uh, a lot of his oeuvre, I would believe it. It's not on streaming, but I'm I'm pretty sure if you go on his Wikipedia or All Music or something, you can see he released a hefty bunch of albums. Yeah, and I'm sure that there's lots of stuff that didn't get recorded in his lifetime. Um, yes, and I think this one, definitely, I think, upon your first few lessons, definitely um, stays in the comedic realm. Yeah. Just because of the bluntness of his lyrics and you know i don't think there's any shame in that you know and it is funny i think yes and i and i don't think there's i don't think i don't know if he's not trying for the the comedic element and i think i think with wesley willis if you listen to enough you'll 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 begin laughing at him which i will say is an appropriate response upon first listen there's Mm -hmm. no shame in that but i think as you listen to it more you'll start laughing with him and I, I think with with his stuff, you get a sense of the guy yes. as you go. You get a sense of his likes, his dislikes, his personality. Like, as you listen to Wesley Willis's music, you sort of figure out who he is. Mm-hmm. And he he's just this big, jovial character. Right. And he was a great visual artist. Yeah. He, there was a... There's, I don't know if there's video of it, but there is a an ABC News profile on him somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was able to sell CDs pretty easily when he went on tour. He was able to sell out shows pretty easily too. Um, there's just something about the guy that people really like. I'll, uh, I'll put, I'll put this in, uh, in post, but you can, I'll put a picture of him. He has a permanent bruise on his forehead because it was traditional of him to headbutt his fans in, in a loving way, not in a violent a, way. A, a soft, loving headbutt. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, Wesley Willis just, he seems like a really lovable guy and you, get that through his music very quickly yes. in the way that you get it about someone like Jonathan Richmond. And like the vocal delivery and the lyrics are somewhere in between uh, hip hop and punk uh, and the, just the way the delivery and just the very anti-authoritarian and confrontational nature of them. Yeah, there is kind of a punk sensibility to it with uh, his lyrics and just sort of the way he tells it like it is and just very bluntly talks about how he feels. Yeah, and yeah, Wesley Willis is great. Uh, check out the two comps on uh, Spotify. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of analysis you can do of his music. Just listen to it and you'll like it. Much like Daniel Johnson, very tragic uh, backstory. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I'd say he's worth your time. Again, Wesley Willis would be on the outside of music, Mount Rushmore. For Definitely. Sure. I think the 
<laughs> the grease ball we're going to talk about next would probably also be on the Outsider Music Mount Rushmore. I'd agree with that. Everyone should be able to recognize this upcoming song. The 60s must have been really crazy to live through. <laughs> because uh, if, if a man like that could have been popular, then anything is possible. Yeah. Uh, you might recognize that song from uh, SpongeBob. Also, uh, one of Insidious. The... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Insidious as well. Um, that is, of course, Tiny Tim, a six foot one man who chose as his instrument of choice the ukulele. Mm-hmm. In a time when the ukulele was not popular at all, and had not been popular since like Eisenhower, right? But he did it. So Tiny Tim was a an extremely eccentric guy. He would powder his face. He had long, stringy hair. He wore mismatched suits, um, and he was a bit of a ladies' man. <laughs> In a less than stellar way. Less than a legal way. In a less than legal way, yeah. Uh, Tiny Tim was a creep. Um, And apparently there is a documentary. I know it's been making rounds on the film festival circuit for like the last two years. But I think there's a documentary you can finally watch online on Tiny Tim, which I will be spending time with. Maybe I'll talk about it after I see it. But um, I do have a bit of an anecdote about Tiny Tim and his career's beginnings Um, that can kind of give you a sense of the guy and how he had to struggle to get to his brief 15 minutes of fame. Five minutes, three minutes of fame. Um, So this is Harry Stein talking about uh, Tiny Tim's uh, pre-fame places that he would have to play. Hubert's Museum and Live Flea Circus epitomized the underside of show business, the dream gone sour. Located in the basement of a penny arcade in Times Square, Hubert's was as low as a performer could sink. Customers showed up more to gawk than to be entertained, and they were rarely disappointed. The great pitcher Grover Cleveland Alexander, grown old and fat, was once reduced to putting himself on display. So was Jack Johnson, the former heavyweight champ. On the same bill as magicians, jugglers, and strongmen, there was invariably an assortment of human curiosities. Cielo had seal flippers instead of arms. Jose de Leon, another regular, had no appendages whatsoever. Albert Alberta was billed as a living, breathing hermaphrodite. In the back, Professor Roy Heckler took his trained fleas through their turns. Tiny Tim played Hubert's in 1959, when he was known as Larry Love. His stay in the basement was remarkable neither for its duration nor for the attention he received. 
The fact is he fit right in. So no matter the point of time he was alive in, Tiny Tim was always a man out of time. He was, uh, he was an oddball. He was someone who was obsessed with the music from about 1900 to 1945. Uh, so sort of pre-World War II stuff. He had memorized about a zillion songs, and he could play them front to back, back to front, however you wanted them. Tiny Tim was, for being such a strange guy, truly a kind of folk troubadour. Like, Tiny Tim did the rounds in the same circuit that Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell were in. Mm -hmm. Like, he was playing the same places, playing on the same nights. He stayed at Bob Dylan's house. So Tiny Tim, as as much as seeming like and being a big weirdo, was also kind of in. He was he was as far outside of the in crowd as you can be while still being in it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and he he just really he there's there's something about his music too. Yeah. Um, I think. I think, you know, I think his music speaks for itself. Yeah, there, there's kind of this, I, I think if I, if I really had to talk about what, what does it for me with his stuff, there's this, this uh, 40s, like 1900s, early 1900s song style and all these great old covers he pulled out that no one had heard in the last 20, 30 years, like Tiptoe Through the Tulips. But then it's also done with a, late 60s production style Mm -hmm. so they're like trying to accentuate especially on that first album kind of the psychedelic nature of it or like the weirdness is really put front and center Mm -hmm. and i i think there's something really special about that and to uh to really hammer home how popular tiny tim was in his brief year of fame um in 1969 he uh, married uh on on the Tonight Show, uh, Victoria May Budinger, who was 17 at the time, um, Miss Vicky is what he called her. He called every woman Miss, and he called every man Mister. That's just the way Tiny was. But he got married to Miss Vicky on the Tonight Show, and 40 million people watched. It was one of the highest-rated TV shows and biggest journalistic events of 1969, the year that we went to the moon. The summer of love, like (laughs) one of the biggest watershed years in American history. That was one of the biggest things on TV. Manson murders. Yeah. Yeah. Tiny Tim getting married on the Tonight Show for some reason. He really, in a not good way, but he really made his 15 minutes of fame count. Yeah, he did. And so Tiny Tim, a man who got very famous at the time. I think we're done with Tiny Tim, right? Yeah. Yes. Tiny Tim, a man who got very famous for a second. The next person we're going to be talking about is someone who purposefully languished in obscurity for the vast majority of his career. And I think if we are to assume that this Mount Rushmore has six people on it, uh, <laughs> uh, because the Shags count as three, but uh, he would also kind of be on there, I think. He would be, but it would maybe just be a circle and a big question mark. <laughs> so who we're going to talk about next is Jandek. I can't tell you that much about him because, to be honest, we don't know that much. Uh, But we're going to let the music speak here. This is a little bit of They Told Me I Was a Fool. (laughs) 
Jandek stuff sounds like now. Um, the first part of his career, he released lots of albums that were just sort of that. Uh, him with with sort of a song and with some lyrics singing over just kind of detuned guitar playing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he knew how to play the guitar or not. Or knows because he's still or knows. alive. He is still alive. Uh, you can see him live once in a while. I think we do have a name now. Um, he might have. So, backstory. Jandek started in the '70s, just releasing albums uh, from his company, Corwood Industries, um, and lots of times the album covers would be just sort of a picture of something we presume in his house—a couch, a window. Sometimes a picture of him. Sometimes a picture of his of, of his face, or what we presumed to be his face for a very long time, because we didn't know. Um, but there, there's a, a long first period where that's what the vast majority of his music sounds like, and he was just sort of releasing it. No credits on the album of who plays what, um, no real information other than song titles and lengths. Uh, that was kind of it. So just like the barest bones private press stuff, but without even any real credit, just Jandek. That's it. Um, and Jandek would would send his stuff around. Uh, unsolicited to people, to radio stations, to uh, music journalists. And eventually a few people got on his trail, started trying to contact him for interviews, started trying to figure out who the man was. Um, But it wasn't really until the early 2000s when he played his first live shows and started granting an interview every once in a while that we kind of figured out who the man was, but it hasn't really made a difference. There's this this air of mystery over all of his stuff. Yeah, I think like the most we know about him is like who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know a little bit, but we definitely don't have backstories on albums or mm-hmm. song lyrics or anything like that. That's that's some of the reasons why Jandek stuff is some of my favorites on the playlist. I really enjoyed looking into this stuff because it gave me the same sort of like despair and loneliness that you know i would get from like um like no wave stuff like early like that super early sonic Youth. yeah i know you weren't a big fan of but like you know that sort of like detached detuned you know attitude it was just like i don't know it, it, it's it hits a different place no i definitely and i definitely think um like that that was actually I was when Brody and I were assembling this playlist and I played this that's kind of that that's my only frame of reference was hearing that Sonic Youth stuff but Jandek was doing it earlier and I think he he really he could totally know what he was doing but he really qualifies for this because we just don't know where mm-hmm. what place he was at when he started recording this stuff to me that's just very strange i mean for like he he probably like you know 
uh, he probably you know was working jobs and like people had no idea that like he had like this cult following or right. And he it, it's kind of this interesting. Uh, it, it it almost predicted the way things would work on the internet. Right, yeah, because I know a lot of artists very early in their career nowadays, such as uh, The Weeknd, kind of started off with, like, who is this? Who is this person releasing music? So, right. It, yeah. There, there was, like, this this anonymity and this... Uh, just this kind of prolific nature to his recording output as well mm-hmm. that hadn't hasn't really been matched by an independent musician until more modern times. And uh, he's still releasing music to this day, I believe. He's released two albums this year. He is still releasing music. You can shoot him an email if you want to. He will respond. He responded to me when I said he should put his stuff on streaming. He <laughs> said they are not currently considering it, but they might in the future. Oh. Um, but, I don't know, maybe shoot Jandek an email and see if he'll put a few of the albums on streaming. You can, uh, you can, but you can buy uh, CDs of it on uh, Corewood Industries' um, website. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can get all of his stuff online. Um, so just check it out. As his music goes on, eventually he's introducing other band members. He's there's a song called I think Time and Space that's like seven seven minutes long, but it sort of plays around with like a kind of bluesy mm-hmm. thing. I really enjoy that. That's probably my favorite of his, but. I mean, if it, it, there's this really sinister nature to his stuff, but then there's also the anonymity, and putting that all together, it kind of becomes a fun mystery, and it's, it's, it's pretty menacing music Yeah, a lot of the time. I, I, th- I think for a certain mood, it works. Maybe the spooky season that we're in <laughs> um, with your... Uh, so next time you get your pumpkin spice latte... <laughs> turn on some Jandek. Jan- <laughs> that, sh- that should be coffee house music, is Jandek. It is acoustic. Um, so next we're going to talk about a, an even earlier self-released musician who was so prolific he was playing more than one instrument at once. Um, this is a little bit of She Said by Hazel Adkins. Hassel? Hazel? Hassel, I think. Hassel Adkins. Uh, from the Norton compilation, Out to Hunch. Let's hear Well, I was going to tell you what happened. I went out last night, and I got his stuff. When I woke up, his body should have seen what I had in the bed with me. He jumped up out of the bed, pulled his hand down his eye, looked at me like a guy in Canada that come out on me. He said, he said, Hassel's story about a bit of a drunken hookup with a uh, demon, a hill person of some sort. I'm not really sure. Uh, Hazel Adkins, he focuses a lot on uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll sort of stuff. 
uh, before that was even acceptable to sing about. And he, he has a lot of paranormal elements. So I don't know if that is supposed to be a demon. He has a song about cutting someone's head off and putting it on his wall like a deer mount. Hmm. Um, but this is pretty far out stuff for the 50s and 60s uh, to be recording. Apparently, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I think Hassel heard uh, maybe Jerry Lee Lewis or heard Elvis Presley on the radio and thought, well, that's the name on the label, so he must be playing all the instruments. So uh, Hazel, he learned to play drums and guitar at the same time. And then he would record stuff like She Said, or Chicken is another good one. Um, this is stuff that really influenced bands like The Cramps, which I'm going to play uh, as my recommendation, a cover of this by The Cramps. Nice. But what did, what do y'all think of this? I know this is probably more my wheelhouse than yours. Well, um, I, I, I heard the uh, sort of country bop to it. And and that kind of stood out to me as like, oh, you know, this is something Ben sort of gravitates towards. And I really enjoyed it, too. It was sort of like the that devil went down to Georgia sort of beat. Um, it, it was actually really enjoyable. I I was bopping my head to it when I heard it. Yeah, I, I really liked it. Like like uh, Michael said, it has a bit of a country to it. I think it has a bit of blues to it. it has a bit of like rockabilly to it, you know? I think, I honestly, it's weird. I think this is one of the more... Uh, I think less weird out of all of them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because it's not it's not far off in terms of production as some of like the really really early blues, like right, Robert the, Johnson type stuff. You the know? rough yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So like you know, hearing it on first listen, it's kind of like, oh, this just sounds like something old. But then you listen more into the lyrics, and then that's where you sort of get the element and put it into context with the time that it came out that you start to understand this is not something that was it was very original when it came out and just say that and also how we played with drums and guitars at the same right the the one-man band style performance i think yeah i think hassel is probably the first the first he's sort of our transition from we talked about the really big ones now we're going to talk about the stuff that really that you kind of dig on yeah that that really speaks for me yeah we're gonna know we're gonna go with another crazy tripped out hillbilly up next uh this is the legendary stardust cowboy apparently when david bowie signed uh to i think mercury records uh he was given a big stack of 45s as like a welcome gift like hey we know you like records we know you really love listening to music and a bunch of different stuff here's a ton of people you share a label with now uh surprisingly enough the legendary stardust cowboy was one of them Uh, and he got this record uh paralyzed uh, and this was apparently his favorite out of the stack It's a bit of paralyzed one of the wildest records ever made. Yeah, it's pretty uh it's pretty out there. And this is a uh 
this is not an exclusive, but uh, would you guys like to hear the lyrics to Paralyzed? Please. Mm-hmm. Of what we just heard. <clears throat> I got a gal way across town. She won't come down to see me unless I pull my shades down. Paralyzed, paralyzed. She puts her arms around me. The way she squeezes me makes me paralyzed. When I go to the show, boy, she does make a fella bestow. Paralyzed, paralyzed. When I look into her eyes, she makes me paralyzed. I think the only lyric I got out of that while listening was when I go to the show. I do kind of hear that. But there are lyrics, and uh, you could send in to Mercury Records to get a handwritten copy of lyrics when this single came out. (laughs) So I, I do have a little bit on kind of how that was recorded. Please. I mean, the legendary Stardust Cowboy, from all accounts, was a a weird dude, but he's not, like, like he's just a weird dude, you know? He, he, he is not totally conscious of, I, I think, how weird what he's doing is what he's doing. It's just what he's doing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> he's doing what he's doing, and he doesn't think it's that weird. But, so apparently... Uh, they stopped in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, and two vacuum cleaner salesmen, they spied his uh, car, which at the time I think it said on the side, NASA presents the legendary Stardust Cowboy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talked to him, and they figured out, hey, this guy, uh, he's a performer. So they invited him along to a club they were going to that night, and then they took him to the recording studio. And he recorded that song, uh, I believe, in one take with someone who was just then the engineer there, T-Bone Burnett, who would actually go on to be a relatively famous musician uh, in his own right. But uh, The Ledge, as he's known, plays guitar on that. Well, it's actually a broken dobro where he could only play the first fret. Um, T-Bone Burnett plays the drums. Um and the bugle solo that happens later on is uh, that's also the ledge. But they just sort of made one of the wildest records ever. I think everyone at the studio was kind of sleep deprived. It was pretty early in the morning. It was like 2 a.m. or something when that was recorded. But they recorded it. T-Bone ran it upstairs to the radio station up above them. And wouldn't you know it, they had a hit on their hands. <laughs> um, t- so... That song, Paralyzed, actually did pretty good business for outsider music. It scraped into the bottom of the Billboard Hot 200. Um, and it, it was released on Mercury Records, which I don't think that The Ledge did anything else on Mercury, but having a single like that picked up and charting when there are actual real bands making regular music that doesn't chart at all, uh, pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, I think there's something very um, proto-punk about that, uh, the, the music, especially with the vocals, obviously, it's very screamy, but also the drums are very reminiscent of hardcore, like... Right, it's just sort of a... It's it's like... It's, it's honky-tonk, but cranked up, like, all the way, tempo-wise, yeah. and then not really sung more screamed and shouted yeah you know but i i I think paralyzed is is one of the wildest records i've ever heard honestly i really that that energy is something that is not often matched Mm -hmm. especially on acoustic instruments yeah let's keep going yeah um so up next we're going to talk about someone whose record i have right here next to me this is uh bobby brown who since has become known as Bobby Frank Brown, to not be confused with the R&B singer of the same name, who contributed a song to the Ghostbusters 2 soundtrack. 
and that's all the information I have on the other Bobby Brown. <laughs> um, but this is from his debut album, uh, The Enlightening Beam of Exonda, parentheses, God's Proof, uh, which kind of foreshadows next week's show. Um, but Bobby Brown apparently had a six-octave vocal range, and I'm going to play you a bit of My Hawaiian Home from this, uh, which is performed on his homemade instruments. Um, and then we'll talk about it a little more. Maybe I'll give you a pull quote or two from the back of the record. Forgetting heaven's infinitely blissful vision of oneness, Johnny was born. For me, I, I really am fascinated with hippie culture. I think one of the most fascinating things for me is what happened to the hippies after the 60s. Uh, in Bobby Brown's case, he just kept going. Um, so I can't... So uh, the Enlightening Beam of Exonda is uh, sort of a concept record. And this is, <clears throat> for the video viewer, original copy, signed. Wow. I also have his second album, a live album, uh, played in his van to his dog, signed. Um, I think the vast majority of copies uh, are signed. I, you could only order them from him. His phone number's back here as his address. I assume neither of them are the same anymore. But so Bobby had sort of his way of thinking about the world, developed through many means, I'm sure. Um, I can't really tell you the concept, but I can give you a little bit of what he says the story is here on the back. Uh, it's, quote, an original contribution to the field of religion and science based on physics, to my knowledge not yet discovered by other humanoids. More revolutionary than Einstein's revelations of Newtonian physics. The application of this physics will perhaps, in fact, lead to the most significant change in the history of humanity plus total religious unity. So Bobby Brown had it figured out, and it's in here. Uh, I haven't figured it out yet, but it's probably in there somewhere. Um, some of the people I'm in, comf in good company with who were trying to figure it out, uh, quote, it's totally incredible, but, it'll, but it will never sell. Uh, that's from Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys. And it's the most incredible thing I've ever heard, Kenny Loggins of Loggins and Messina. Um, so Bobby plays all that, mostly his homemade instruments. He does have a six-octave vocal range, which is, if true, one of the most impressive vocal ranges ever recorded. Um, Bobby Brown is still around. I 
he might be working on another record. I don't know. I've seen reports of him working on music, but I haven't seen any of the proof. Um, but he just sort of drifts around still to this day. Um, he has another record uh, that is also on streaming, and he has a live album, which is not, but all are worth seeking out. Um, I don't know. There's just this, there's something about this spaced out surfer dude that really. That is the most beautiful song on the playlist to me. I was really vibing with that one. I loved it. Yeah, there's, I don't know. It, it, it's definitely outsider because I haven't really heard much else like it. And he seems to have a lot of very big goals, including total religious unity to get to with his music. But it, it, it's really great stuff. It really is. Um, this is like psychedelic to the nth degree, you know, like you can't go too much farther out than this. I'd put it in the same category as something like the Hampton Grease Band, but this is way more unchained than that. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's good stuff. I like it a lot. The next thing we got here is another one pulled from uh, Songs in the Key of Z compilation. Yes, yes. we will go to that, but before we play that one, which I think will be the last uh, true outsider, I would like to play... Uh, one that I didn't put on the playlist, but right. is on YouTube. Um, this was released on Frank Zappa's Bizarre Records. This is the street performer Wild Man Fisher uh, with, I believe, Zappa's band. I think Zappa plays guitar on this. Um, so a little more mainstream than a lot of this stuff, but Wild Man Fisher, definitely outsider. This is The Circle. <laughs> your house, baby, just like a circle, yeah, a triangle, a triangle, a triangle, a triangle, baby, I'm moving so fast that you, not even your cat can follow me, baby, I'm going around, I'm going upside down, inside up and down and back and wound and up and up and down and up and around and up that down and double into that down like a circle, baby. I say like a circle, baby. I mean, that's Wild Man Fisher from his exceedingly rare An Evening with Wild Man Fisher double album. I'd say that's the best song on it, but what'd y'all think of that? Well, we have a kind of a mainstream artist on here being Frank Zappa. Why would this be considered outsider music? This is definitely outsider music for the main man there. Like Wesley Willis, for example, recorded albums with a full band. Mm. Uh, Or Daniel Johnston did too, actually. So I think as long as you have that main person who's leading everything, um, sort of doing their thing and just being themselves then you can have supplemental musicians who would be more cognizant of what's up, you know? Yeah? Yeah. Let's talk about the last outsider act. This is from... So Songs in the Key of Z is a great book, but it's also a uh, series of four compilations, which I highly recommend. I believe they're all streaming. Yeah. Um, We're going to play you something from the fourth one. I don't know much about Ed and Alice Gorin. Obviously, they were together at some point or related or something. Um, But this is California Cruiser, and this one, I just like this one. Hey, my California. 
bit of California Cruiser ushering us into. So we, we, we sort of have two more things to talk about um, before we get to recommendations. First, I'd like to talk about is something I had a relatively transcendent experience with this summer. Um, so as I've talked about, my summer and my internship kind of sucked. But there were bright spots. One of the brightest spots was I was in Alpena, Michigan. And every year they have the Brown Trout Festival. The Brown Trout Festival was back in full swing this year. And one of the things that they had there was an Elvis impersonator. And scoff all, all, all you want. There is something truly magical about the Elvis impersonator. And while not always an outsider artist, Eilert Pilarm definitely is. We're going to play you a bit of a man who is known as uh, one of the worst Elvis impersonators of all time. He's near and dear to my heart. Here's Eilert Pilarm with his version of Heartbreak Hotel. And then we're going to talk about something even weirder, maybe? Since my baby left me, I found a new place to dwell. Down at the lonely street at Heartbreak Hotel. I get so lonely. I get so lonely, baby. I get so lonely. Sweden's leading Elvis impersonator, Eilert Pilarm. I guess Elvis always comes up, uh, comes up around here around Halloween, huh? Mm-hmm. Because we have had an Elvis impersonator on the show before. It, and out, Elvis impersonators are not uh, completely foreign to outsider musicians. There's a few of them, right? No, I, yeah, I mean, there, there definitely are a few uh, outsider musician Elvis impersonators. The next one we're going to talk about maybe musically doesn't, qualify as outsider music but conceptually it really does so obviously elvis died near the end of the 70s what a great loss for this country in my opinion um and there are lots of songs that elvis never got to lend his signature style to but there's an album from the band highway 61 called elvis found alive (laughs) that uh hopes to rectify that at least a little bit Here's an Elvis-esque cover of Every Breath You Take. this episode turning into this is turning into ben finally gets to play everything he wants is soundcheck the first outsider podcast (laughs) it's starting to feel that way um but if you think about it if you step back 
from uh, obviously Elvis impersonators are hokey and corny and weird, but there's something really bizarre about the fact that there's a cottage industry grown up around impersonating this guy who's been dead for 40 years. Uh, and there are obviously tribute bands and stuff like that, but a total impersonation, an impression of the onstage persona, of the clothes, of the look, of everything. And we were talking about it. It's just like, there's no market for this. Like, no one wants to hear this, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, uh, who... Th- this is the only conceivable thing I can think of there being a market for, honestly, is th- this exact song. Because there's tons of stuff on this album where it's just like re-records of Elvis stuff. There's there's one original song about Lisa Marie Presley, which I have not listened to yet. There's also the... Uh, highly recommend Find the Elvis Found Alive album. Last track is the Elvis is Back rap, um, which I think it's using rap in more of the old-fashioned sense, like to talk. But that's very strange. But, like, this, this to me is the blueprint for what Elvis impersonators should be doing, which is cover modern songs in that Elvis style. And then it's like, he is still alive. Yeah. Or is he? Elvis, if you're out there listening, thank you so much for your patronage. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last thing we're going to talk about a second, uh, which I know you have a, a familial connection to, actually, Brody, is uh, the song poem industry. What? <laughs> oh, yeah, it isn't as funny. As Brody does not have a song, uh, have, a, have a, a connection to this, but can you tell us a little bit about your personal song poem connection? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, my uh, my uh, great-grandma, Floria, uh, sent one in. Uh, That's it? Sent one in, uh, and to really, really lighten the mood. It's about her dead husband who died in World War II. Um, and I don't know. I'm not, obviously, I'm biased because she was my family. It's a decent song. Pretty good tune. Uh, yeah. But song poems. We oh. actually, actually, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll let you finish. <laughs> 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 but, um, um, uh, we have a 45 of the, um, of the song uh, poem. The song poem that she sent it to. But yeah. Wow. It's pretty interesting. I thought you meant like I was related to this next outsider artist. No. is not related to this next artist nor the subject matter. Um, but so the song poem industry is something that is still kind of around in a different way, but uh, prominently featured again on a SpongeBob episode. Um, you, would, you would write out your lyrics and then you'd send it into a company and they'd record it for you professional. They'd put music to it. If you didn't have music, uh, they'd get it all done. Um, so what this this whole industry resulted in, which mostly came from, like, magazine ads, mm-hmm. um, was a giant swath of songs that are just okay. Um, just a bunch of songs where it's like, okay, lyrics, okay, music, it's okay. Um, for, there are probably some songs that are legitimately really good. Actually, I know there are. I have heard some. But then there's, uh, I don't know if it's people playing jokes on the companies. Well, this one, I'll get into the backstory, but I actually did some reading up on this oh, one. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, so, but there, there, there's lots of pretty strange stuff. And this one I'm about to play you from the American Song Poem Anthology compilation um, is actually, this, this is a very bizarre song, I would say. This is called Blind Man's Penis, parentheses, Peace and Love. I 
got high last night on LSD. My mind was beautiful and I was free. Warts love my nipples because they are pink. Bob it on me, baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. A blind man's penis is a red because he is blind. It's a red because he is blind. Blind man's penis is erect because he's blind. It's erect because he's blind. So to explain this, I'll read the um, I'll read the first paragraph of uh, the background, the genius genius annotation of it. Oh, good. Um, originally dealing specifically with the topic of Stevie Wonder's penis. Uh, the lyrics for the song were scribbled down as a poem by musician and prankster John Truby as a way of alleviating boredom during a shift at his job as a convenience store cashier. Shortly afterwards, he saw an ad in the back of a supermarket tabloid asking for lyricists to send in their song lyrics to co-write songs and split royalties. And, on the Stevie Wonder thing, in the version Truby sent to the song Poem People, the line was originally around about Stevie Wonder's penis. The artist who recorded this changed it to the more blind man, either out of fear of a lawsuit or because it makes the line flow better. Wow. Yeah. You, well, I, I didn't think there was going to be background on this song, but there is. I, I really can't believe that there was any information on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's there's a there was a cottage industry for a little while. There is a large amount of these songs, um, and they're worth digging through. There are entire blogs that are devoted to them, um, which is where I think I first learned about song poems. But would you, but would you consider all of these outsider music or just a select few? Um, I mean, generally speaking, song poems aren't outsider music, just because. A lot of the time, it's uh, it's r- relatively normal lyrics, relatively normal. Like the the studio players are proficient, you know, this is their job. Uh, the singers are proficient, but when you get some oddball prankster sending in lyrics like that, uh, that's kind of when the magic happens. Yeah, I think in terms of song poems, there aren't really stars, but Rod Keith is someone uh, worth looking up. He I think he really loved drugs and alcohol, uh, and he just worked at a song poem place, but he was a super talented musician. Um, so if you can find any of the stuff he produced, uh, if it's stuff he wrote himself or if it's stuff that he produced for other people, really worth checking out. There's like a big Beach boys kind of sound to a lot of it. He's sort of a Brian Wilson-esque composer in a way, but definitely worth hearing, I would say. I think we can just sort of play a little more Daniel Johnston and round this out with recommendations. I think so. Sure. Do you want to talk a little bit about this song, Brody? I like it. It's your favorite? Yep. This is Brody's favorite Daniel Johnston song, Desperate Man Blues. There 
feel much like singing. Can't see what for. I think Frank Sinatra should have taken a crack at that one. <laughs> that that would have been interesting. I kind of hear it. It's got that that music hall sort of yeah. kind of croonery thing kinda going like on. Kind of like orchestral, vocal, jazz sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can go into recommendations, uh, which I'm going to break out of the outsider mold going first here. Uh, and I'm just going to play a little bit of that She Said cover. So this is a non-outsider band covering an outsider musician, which happens a lot. I know Built to Spill has an entire album of Daniel Johnson That's covers. That's true. Yeah. Um, it's just a little bit of She Said from the Cramps live album, Smell of Female. Hey! What are you looking at? Well, let me tell you what it is. Please. I went out last night and I got completely messed up. And when I woke up this morning, you should have seen what I had in the bed with me. You wouldn't believe it. She looked up at me. I'm getting to that. She looked up at me out of her clear blue and red bloodshot eye ball right in the middle of her twilight zone in the diner. She said, she said, Highly recommend the Cramps. I could, if you know, they're one of those bands that if I had to pick one band to listen to, that might be it. You know, for the rest of the life. Yeah, that might be one. You have a bit of an outsider wreck too, don't you? Michael? I do. Yes, this is my favorite outsider musician, uh, B.J. Snowden. Um, I like her because she's based out of Massachusetts, and she did a, a single all about a uh, a Red Sox catcher named Daitsuki Matsuzaka, the longest last name to ever be put on a baseball jersey. I don't care I don't care about sports much, but the Red Sox are the only team that I sort of tune into, so this immediately caught my eye. The a really interesting thing about Snowden though is when um Songs in the Key of Z was being put together, um when she was asked to be featured on it, she listened to all of the other musicians that were put on this and she said, Wow, all of this sucks. Why are you putting me on this? So it goes to reiterate the ideas that we originally put forward at the beginning of this episode before it totally got derailed. Um, <laughs> that outsider music music is about true originality, and the it's more about what the artist thinks of themselves rather than when you project onto them. And I feel like that's going to be a theme moving forward as more outsider music gets made and more stuff like what you're about to hear Um gets put in here she's also recognized um a lot by fred schneider from the b-52s um and he helped her in her recording of the christmas hop um which is snowden's holiday single she also has one about halloween um and a lot of songs about canada so but here is daitsuki matsuzaka 
Dropkick Murphys would be jealous. <laughs> Very jealous. <laughs> you want to talk about uh, someone who was an outsider in personality, at least, Brody? Yeah, I think he's outsider adjacent. Um, he, he just kind of makes psych music. Uh, it's Bob Tremble, but he's a bit of an eccentric. Uh, he would uh, often hire high school kids, like 14, 15-year-olds, to play on his records. Yeah, he had two He had two backing bands. I think one of them was the Junkyard Dogs. I don't know what the other one was, but they were both made up of, like, kids in his neighborhood who were, like, 14, 15. And he was, I think, in his 20s, mm-hmm. later 20s. So, yeah, kind of an out-there personality. But uh, I think he makes, again, outsider music. Eh, he just kind of makes like what Psych would sound like in the '80s, but it's pretty good stuff. Really he, badass album cover. Also. Yeah, that's true. You know, obviously he has a knowledge of song structure, and it sounds like mainstream psych rock. But he was a he was an out there guy, out there individual. Also, not many '80s psych bands. Yeah, so. definitely just doing a weird thing at a weird time musically. Even yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's basically it. This album, this this episode started out relatively normal, but much like an outsider song. It got weird pretty quick. Yes. <laughs> and that was on purpose. Ding. Can you put a ding there? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to give a little preview to next week? Yeah. So we're going to, this This is sort of, we tried to do a Halloween month and it didn't totally shake out that way. But um, next week for the final episode of October, we're going to be doing something on it's it's a little freeform now. We'll see if we have to find some more stuff, but most likely the music of cults and cult leaders and members. And murderers. And maybe murderers, too. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, the, is this going to be the one that I'll get in trouble for? Let's find out. <laughs> That's basically it. So, as always, good, good night, night, Detroit. Detroit.
<laughs> yeah, it's in, it's in, it's in the key, so it's fine. One, two, one, two, three, four. Trying to remember, but my feelings don't know for sure. Just try to reach out, but it's gone. Lucky stars in your eyes. I am walking the cow. I really don't know how I came in here. I really don't know why I'm staying here. Oh, oh, oh. I am walking the cow. Try to point my finger. But the wind keeps blowing me around in circles, in circles. Lucky stars in your eyes. I am walking the cow. I really don't know what I have to fear. I really don't know why I have to care. Oh, oh, oh. I am walking the cow.